0: This is the neurosurgery podcast. Welcome back to the neurosurgery podcast. Here we are in fabulous Las Vegas recording in person at the Spine Summit, our favorite meeting every year, with a returning champion, uh, one of our earliest guests who is with us at the uh, big marathon rollout of the podcast we did way back in 2019 in San Francisco. We're joined, of course, by Dr. Dan Resnick. Uh, Dr. Resnick, some of our listeners will have heard your past episodes, but for any stragglers who just joined the show recently, take a moment, say hello, and introduce yourself. Well,
1: hello, I'm um, Dan Resnick. I'm a uh, professor of neurosurgery at the University of Wisconsin. I've been involved in the spine section and the CNS and NAS for many years and uh, got my start doing guidelines. So most, most of what I do uh, these days is really commenting on the literature and the quality thereof and um, uh, trying to help the societies develop reasonable policies with regard to various procedures and technologies that beca- as, they, as they become available.
0: Yeah. And as so often happens at these wonderful meetings, I bumped into you in a bar last night and we were talking about some of your past work and guidelines and recommendations. And you said, you know, I had one regret from back when I was doing that stuff. (laughs) And that brings us to today's topic. So we're going to kind of dive headfirst into this and talk about SI joint fusion. So again, for some of our younger listeners who are in even college medical school training, um, maybe we could talk a bit about what SI joint fusion is and why it's done? Well,
1: SI fusion is currently being popularized as a minimally invasive procedure where uh, implants are placed across the SI joint from a lateral approach. And this can be done with a variety, variety of techniques. There's now robotic techniques that are that are pretty slick uh, for these things as well as using image guidance uh, uh, to, to do it uh, or traditionally using fluoroscopy. Uh, these have become popular over the last probably five to 10 years and really based upon a research that was done uh, done by a group of researchers, all of whom were essentially employees that were, and are paid consultants of the manufacturing company. Now, this in, in and of itself is not necessarily unusual. Uh, most of the technologies that we used are, have been promoted by companies, and most of the data that is used to gain approval from the FDA or gain acceptance by the especially comes from industry-sponsored studies, and that's okay. Uh, The issue that we were talking about last night is that I really felt that the evidence supporting SI fusion uh, was immature at the time that we were being asked to make important policy decisions, and this is a common thing that happens in organized neurosurgery and organized spine surgery, Uh, particularly the large membership organizations, the CNS, the WNS, and North American Spine Society, feel that um, among their charges is to advocate for their members who are doing uh, various procedures. And so if if a number of their members are doing a a procedure and they bring it to the attention of the executive committee of of that organization, the executive committee feels an obligation to look into this and try to help the members in terms of basically doing some downfield blocking in um, creating policies and procedures to aid in reimbursement, to aid Mm -hmm. in, uh, the allow in, in defying the professional scope of who can do the procedure th- those types of issues yeah you know dan it's such an important topic, and i'm so glad
2: that you and j p have touched upon this. It is a little bit wonky um you know and I, and for those of you not familiar with this problem uh, si pain, I see it every day in clinic, and I don't think you would dispute there's such a, a problem with the joint itself causing pain, right? It's upwards of 10% of all back pain or something like that, right? Well, it exists as, yes, a, as an entity. I, I completely yeah. agree, yes. And let me just add another caveat, which is you're a past president of Congress and Neurosurgeons, you're a past president of NAS and a past chair or president of the spine section, right? Yes. And you're not speaking in those capacities right now. This is about as, uh, as a doctor and a scientist, right? Yes,
1: this, this is my opinions that do not represent the position of any organization that I I have ever been or ever will be affiliated, affiliated with.
2: Right. And and let me just add that as um, a current president of ISAS, and ISAS does have a lot of activity inside this SI joint world, and I'm not speaking as that person in that role right now, but rather just as a doctor taking care of people. Okay.
1: Two old friends, all we need is a beer. And we need a
2: coach. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you about this, because I, I, I did a debate against David Polly, who I love, mm-hmm. and we've had him on the podcast, and I calculated that in my career, I've seen something like um, 4,000 cases of SI joint pain, just statistically, right, which is pretty reasonable. Some of them my post-op patients, some de novo, some pre-op, right? Yes. And I believe it's an entity, but yet I've fused none of them. And and my my allegation was if there are that many people, and I see my patients over and over again, that weren't getting better with conservative treatments, meaning non-operative therapy, that they would have gone to someone else or something, right? Like I sent them for injections, I sent them for therapy, ablations. So what's your take on this? you think, is it a self-limited problem, or is it these people are leaving my practice because they hate
1: me now? Like what what do you think is happening? Well, I, I, I do think that pain from the SI joint is a real thing. and uh, We've all seen patients who come in and point right at the SI joint and say it hurts right here. So I mean, that's absolutely true. And I'm not really here to say whether or not SI fusion is a good or a bad thing. My, 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 my bone to pick is that decisions made um, at the top level of our, of our societies in order to support the um, promotion of this uh, were made based upon shoddy data. Uh, and 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 premature data. And this is not the first time we've done this. If, was, if this was the first time we've done this, you know, okay, our bad, sorry. But we've done this so many times. You know, I'm I'm old enough to remember cage rage. You know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was I, I participated in cage rage. You know, back then. But we saw this again with the um, uh, the Trans S1 screw. We saw this again with the the CoFlex device. X stop. Yeah. I mean, we see this. Over and over and over again, and we've talked about Scott's parabola in in the past, where you know, you know, first there's some animal studies which are exciting, and then it's used as sort of an experimental thing, and then a couple early adopters start doing it, and then everybody does it, and then ten years later you got all these devices on the shelf gathering dust, and we tell stories about the old day, good old days, when we did all these cowboy things to patients, but the problem is, is that patients get hurt when you do these things. Yeah. you know, there are complications associated, with things there are costs associated with these things. Um, and we, we were just talking about a few minutes ago uh, about how, how sometimes the performance of, the, of this uh, procedure can actually seem to increase pain in, in certain in certain patients it makes it makes it very difficult to 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 do so if we're going if we're as spine experts going to come down on the side of recommending for or against a particular procedure it would seem that we would want to rely on some relatively robust information to do that yeah, and the, the problem is is that we're we're sort of caught in a catch-22. The only people who are going to do expensive randomized controlled studies to evaluate the efficacy of new technology are the developers of the technology. Hmm. So we have to assume that there's 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 going to be a bias in every single study that's that's presented, and that's true whether or not whether or not that's um, we're talking about si fusion, but whether or not that's bmp, whether or not that's cervical uh, disc arthroplasty. There, there's going to be a bias, okay, and that's fine. You have to assume that bias and then you have to look at the study design uh, to see whether or not there were any efforts made to try to mitigate that bias. For example, blinding of patients and assessors is a very important thing in terms of mitigating bias. Um, the, the identity of the team, did, did, did the company hire the, the group from Yale, Yoda, to run the, the project for them? Did they hire an independent group to, or mm-hmm. do they run it through their own employees and consultants and and that type of stuff and the other thing i think we need i think we need some time to reflect and i think we need some time for other people to look into the into into the into into the into the issue um we saw with cage rage initially based upon very flimsy data case series essentially um or or cohort studies that these procedures were sort of grandfathered in and became very popular procedures. And it wasn't for a few years when independent reports of not-so-great results came out that the bloom sort of fell off the rose. And the same thing happened with the other procedures we talked about before. Um, I'm talking tomorrow about cervical disc arthroplasty, and the theme's going to be fairly similar as to, as to what we're talking about tonight. But, but in the case of the SI fusion issue, the, the papers that were used to gain the support of, the, of ISAS, of NAS, of the WNS and CNS were extremely flawed. Uh, there was no blinding. Uh, the the um, patients were recruited who wanted this procedure and they were promised that if they were randomized to the group that got the procedure, they get the procedure. And if they were a randomized group that didn't get the procedure, they could still get the procedure six months later. Hmm. Um, and so, so right, right there you, you have a uh, patient expect expectancy bias. Um, all the authors were either employees or paid consultants of, of of the company at the time. So right there, you, you have you have you have an exaggeration of the sponsorship bias. Um, the outcomes, uh, while different between the two groups, weren't that great. It's sort of similar to the lumbar disc arthroplasty uh, data, where yeah, the experimental group did somewhat better than the than the control group, but the it really—they didn't really do all that great when you actually look at the uh, mm. when you actually look at the, how many people actually got off narcotics, and, you know how many people actually went back to work. It wasn't like a night and shining armor t- procedure. And as time has gone on, both with the cervical disc as well as with this, when non-industry-sponsored studies have been repeated to look at the same issues, the effects have gone away. So there have now been several prospective cohort studies and and one relatively large. Well, appropriately powered randomized controlled study, non industry sponsored that was blinded uh, with a sham procedure which showed no effect whatsoever of the the implants. So, you know, we've been through this how many times, you know, uh, before and my feeling is that it's time that we kind of own up to the fact that uh, maybe we need to not rush to support procedures with policies that maybe have baked and perhaps Perhaps it's okay to put the brakes on uh, such things uh, in order to allow the literature to mature uh, before we make choices that greatly influence um, patient care. The inclusion of a code in the CMS to pay for this is a zero-sum game. Where is that money coming from? It's coming from lumbar discectomy. It's coming from lumbar fusion. Mm -hmm. It's coming from things that we have a much better track record uh, for, for example.
0: Well, with these concerns that you raise from your perspective, looking at the literature that led to the adoption and widespread use of this procedure, do you have a sense of what has actually happened with this procedure, in the States at least? Uh, Who's doing it? How many are getting done? Is it, you know, you mentioned the parabola, is it, has it taken off? It has definitely taken off, and Mike could probably speak to this as well, The one of the problems we
1: have is that it's now being done by all sorts of folks. It's, it's being done by pain management folks, it's being done by non-surgeons, uh, you know, for example, similar similar to the Facet Fusion, similar to a New Jersey uh, T-Lifts, uh, you know. Uh, New Jersey T-Lift. It, it, there was, a, there, was a, there was an anesthesiologist in New Jersey who was doing MIS T-Lifts, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, you know, there, there, there's that scope of practice issue as well. I'm not really speaking to that. I don't, I don't sure. know the exact numbers. I, these are just, these are what's what's talked about at the, at the bar uh, after the after yeah. the sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is one of the main reasons why you want to come in person to these meetings, so you can be at the bar between sessions and, and, right. and, and hear, hear, hear what's going on. And
2: all the big companies are coming out. Well, I should say all, but many of them are coming out with products to to, to service this market because obviously there's profit, and there's there there's money to be made. But let me ask you about. What you do in your practice, if you would like, so you see a patient and you're pretty convinced they have SI joint pain. How do you take them through an algorithm, or what do you prescribe for them? What do you do to help them get better? And then the second thing I'm going to ask you, as a as a lead, as a follow on to that, is for the person who is not getting better enough, maybe temporarily better with these treatments, and goes on for years and years, do you ever send them for an SI fusion? Do you do it yourself? What what do you do with those very difficult cases? Because we can understand that there's probably a diversity of patients, and they're not all just an SI joint pain problem. There's probably a diversity, right?
1: Yes. So I, I'm I'm blessed. I work at a spine center that is. Uh, we have ample non-operative support. Uh, we uh, of, of the referrals to our spine center, we only operate on about three percent. So ninety-seven percent of our new patient referrals are, are treated non-operatively. Um, at least that's how it was two years ago. The last time we did the numbers, but the um, I have great partners in physical medicine, rehabilitation, who run the show for this. And in general, it's a combination of physical therapy, medications, injections, and rhizotomies. Um, and there's pretty good evidence for the rhizotomies, not necessarily great long-term evidence, but there's, there's pretty good evidence. So that's, that's generally what we do. And this is not outside the usual Non-operative treatment paradigm for these types of things. So it's, it's similar how we treat patients coming with with axial pain without a clear-cut source. You know, the, the, the facet syndromes where we really don't know exactly where the pain is coming from. Where we don't have a red flag, you know, or, or, or a smoking gun to to chase after surgically uh, uh, type thing. And I forgot the second part. The second
2: the part was: let's say someone goes through that process and does get temporary relief, um, but very limited, right? Mm-hmm. In in temporal in a temporal nature, and then still the problem persists despite. Doing their best with the therapy and all these.
1: Yeah, I I, I have sent happens? I have sent several patients. This is you know, on one hand to Dave Polly in Minnesota mm-hmm. uh, for, for the procedure. I don't do the procedure. Um, I do have two of my ex residents who do a lot of these procedures. Mm-hmm. They do them robotically. They do them uh, you know they, very simply. They have they're their owners of their ASC and they and they you know are, are doing a lot of these things and and claim uh, great results Peter Gersten who has no conflicts and this claims great results you know uh, from this procedure so I do believe that there is a population of patients who, do ben- who benefit from this um, but as is the case in almost every new technology these things are being over applied and I'm not saying they don't work I'm just saying that we don't have great evidence that they work and in fact the best evidence we have says they probably don't work all that well
0: yeah. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but Correct. you have to acknowledge that right now the evidence isn't there.
1: Right. And, and my, the regret that I was expressing last night is, you know, we sort of took action on the policy side to answer a perceived need that was being driven by the company that funded these studies mm. and was a developer. And uh, I, I thought that that was probably premature. And in retrospect, I, would have, uh, I think I would have better served the spy community by putting the brakes in that process a little bit.
0: Well, so let me ask you, with the game as it is now, and we can think about this in the abstract, so a hypothetical scenario, we don't have to think just about SI fusions, but if there is some technology or device or procedure that, looking back, you think this was adopted too quickly, the cat got out of the bag, is there really any way to put it back in, or do you just let nature run its course and the thing ends up on the shelf like all those others that you talked about? Is there any... Is there any power that someone in the positions you've had could wield to try and tamp down something? You know, the only thing you could do is wait a couple of years, and
1: well, first off, it's very difficult to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. Right. Um, it's you know, the the only way you could possibly do it is not through payment and policy uh, issues, but through the guidelines. When yeah. you have when you have a, guidelines or AUCs, when you have a more mature. Um, Uh, Database. So guidelines are supposed to be redone every five years because new evidence comes out, you want to incorporate new evidence into the the scheme. So at this point, with the new papers that are out there, if we wrote a guideline on this topic, it would probably read much differently than the ISAS document from 2017, right, because we have more information. And they did that back
2: then. Yeah, so I mean, I think for, for the listenership they, that are not as sophisticated, I mean, Dan, you're, you've are you been involved heavily in policy in, in clinical science and, and all these different pieces and most people, they just are trying to deal with their practices or trying yeah. to get into residency or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But the, we do walk this thin line, right? Because we as surgeons do believe in providing access. We don't believe in limiting access. But then the problem, of course, is this overuse phenomenon. So we walk this razor's edge, right? Of like people who need the treatments we, All three of us advocate for them as surgeons, and that's what we spend most of our time actually doing, right? In addition to doing surgery. But let me ask you about a subset of this, has really caught on and see if you have an opinion because I don't yet. So, um, the de novo or the isolated SI joint pain is one type of problem, the post operative after fusion SI joint pain is another, and now we have this doing the SI fusion at the same time there's a big deformity mm-hmm. right so in other words you're fusing the pelvis anyways and they, a lot of those people do have SI pain for some period afterwards and this idea of doing the SI joint fusion plus the pelvic screws and, or the sacro- sacroiliac screws and then you know some, I don't want to like use the monikers but some people call this a bedrock procedure right that whole family is really taken off what is your opinion on that
1: well my opinion on that is that if the use of this technology is limited to that patient population I'd be a big supporter of this mm-hmm. technology because, you know, if, if you're doing an S2A screw, you're already doing it right, mm-hmm. and you know, might as well supplement it because they do get pain. I mean, mm-hmm. and and in in if you've ended L5 or at the sacrum, a, a number of your patients are going to you know 40 percent of your T10 or above yeah. to pelvis fusions are going to develop SI pain that, and, and you get an, you can get an X-ray and see widening you know, of the joint and, and sclerosis of the joint and type of stuff. So, I think I think that indication. In my opinion, is is probably the most solid indication. Yeah. <laughs> I, now, now, I don't do a lot of deformity surgery. I, 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 the deformities I do are the ones that I create uh, mm. by, by, by March. Spoken <laughs> so like a true spine yeah, surgeon. Well, I've been around, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have I have seen um, uh, SI you know, significant SI joint dysfunction that you can demonstrate radiographically. You can you can get an arthrogram and see. Um, you know the 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 contrast will leak out. They get a good response temporarily with you know with with the injection type stuff, and I think that's a real thing. And mm-hmm. while I'm not a deformity surgeon per se, uh, that particular indication seems to hold water in, in in my book. It's it's the use for less specific back pain complaints that bothers me
0: um, uh, more. Well, let me ask you as we uh, reach the end of this, we want to respect your time, but for as always, I'm the, the young gun in the room. So for some of our younger listeners who aren't familiar with some of those older technologies that have been shelved that you mentioned before, i cage rage, I've never heard of that. I don't know what that is. Maybe if you could think back over the course of your career in the early days, and it could be that or any other procedure or device that maybe you did as a young surgeon that now you look back and laugh at yourself, a- a- anything you can recall from your career that might be of interest or make the young listeners go, you did what? Well, I'll talk about cages. Cages were the BAK cages, which were, uh,
1: they grew out of a veterinary treatment for a uh, horse disease called Wobbler's disease, uh, and mm. it was promoted as a means to treat low back pain. Now, when I was a resident, you know, this is in the days before electricity, when the world was lit by fire, <laughs> etc. But back pain, it was sort of that which shall not be touched. Right. You know, we we you did not do surgery for back pain. You know, if you had the radiculopathy, claudication, deformity, trauma, yes, but back pain, we did not touch. So this is where really the first major thing that was promoted to treat low back pain and, and all of a sudden a whole new plethora of mm. patients were now eligible for surgical intervention and it was a pretty easy surgery to do. Um, realistically, if you had a good, expo- good exposure surgeon, the operation is like 20 minutes of your time. You know, so everyone started doing this and I started doing this because I was just coming out of practice. I didn't want to be perceived as being incompetent or not up on the latest def- things. You you feel a lot of pressure when you first come out to show that you can you can walk run with the big boys you know what i mean and so i, I didn't want to turn these patients away so i started doing them and i started doing them in, with some frequency probably you know 12 or 14 a year which doesn't sound like a lot but what what was from compared to zero uh, is a lot and my patients weren't getting better and i went to all the courses and i went and i uh, presented my cases to a very prominent orthopedic surgeon who was at hopkins at the time who was one of the Pushers of this or of the of this procedure, and I said, "Hey, I mean, these are my patients. These are my how, how come how they're not getting better?" He says, "Well, you must be doing something wrong, you know, because eighty-seven percent of these patients are getting better. Ninety-four percent of them are getting you know fused, you know, blah blah blah." blah. And then I started cutting down on how much uh, I do d- did that procedure, and eventually the literature caught up to my experience and reflected my experience much more than 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 than, than the than the thing. So that procedure. Largely went away. Uh, we were doing them from behind. We were doing them from the front. We were doing them all, all, all sorts of ways uh, Back there now. I will I will do a, a back pain operation once every two or three years And my selection criteria is such that if I would not have that person over to my house for dinner I'm not going to do the operation on them <laughs> because they have to be perfect if they're not perfect then just just not going there. You know,
2: I want to pull on that thread a little bit because I'm thinking back to your CNS presidency and uh, I remember you gave your presidential dress uh, along with Ed Benzel, he preceded you, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what city was it in? Um,
1: uh, I think we're in San Francisco. San
2: Francisco, yeah. And it was a big meeting. And um, I remember hearing your talk, and I was very conflicted internally about it. Maybe I was a little bit younger too. It was mm-hmm. it was a number of years ago. I was like almost 10 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Love I him. was a younger man, too. And I remember thinking to myself, because you and, you and Ed had a thim, similar theme, right. which was, was kind of like about, like, do the right thing, don't do unindicated surgery and all that. And I felt like it was, how do we say, like a little bit embarrassing in front of our cranial colleagues to suggest that they do the right thing and we don't, right? I didn't mean to do that. I, no, no, I, don't, I, know, I know that was not the impact. Uh, I was internally conflicted, and yet I felt like you delivered the message in a way that was cogent, and I have not heard that message much lately, by the way, which is interesting. So if I were to posit a paradigm for you in terms of people are out there trying to figure out indications for a surgery, right? In other words, you see a patient, they come to your clinic, you've never met them before, they've been here once before, and and they're interested in surgery, and I'm going to give you three pillars, and I know they're all important, but I want you to kind of rank order them for me. I know it's kind of a long sure, question, yeah. but it's important to me. Let's call Pillar 1 something like severity of symptomatology. In mm-hmm. other words, how much is the patient suffering, whatever that means, right? Just screaming at you, or whatever. Let's say the second part is um, diagnostic um, variance control. In other words, this person has a PILO mismatch. This person has a big herniation, whatever, myelopathy, right? And then a third will be imaging, which is different from the last one, because the last one is a, is a largely clinical diagnosis supplemented by imaging, right? And the, the last one is the imaging piece, which is, oh, I see this on the MRI or x-ray, right? I know they're all important. They're mm-hmm. all part of our, our argument. How do you put those pieces together? And how do you, uh, because there's got to be sometimes some rank ordering, Right On the on clear-cut cases that don't need surgery, need surgery, that's fine. But there's a lot of cases that you're like, hmm.
1: So Mike, today we had a nice talk yeah. uh, about the concept of wisdom. Yeah. You know, for, right? From, from 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 Eric. Did, a, did a, 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 a great job of that. And that's, this is, you know, you were asking what does the young surgeon do in terms of trying to decide which procedures they're going to mm-hmm. do. It's the exact same process we go through when a patient comes in the office and they've got something on their MRI scan. And they got some symptoms, but there's red flags and it's not quite matching up. And you have to make an equation in your mind. You know, what is the likelihood that what I do is going to help um, in a meaningful way? And and that relies on all three pillars of what you said. Um, the squirreliest one uh, is the severity uh, mm-hmm. issue because there's no cookie cutter. Uh, I, I have a uh, – this past week I was uh, – Nurse came to my came to my desk in clinic said, uh, "Dr. Resnick, there's a woman lying on the floor outside the clinic. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, <laughs> yeah. a, a very young, very obese woman who was lying supine on the floor, screaming in pain from you know uh, she had not that's yeah. one disc herniation. Yeah, yet we've p- had people walk in with much more horrible looking MRI scans all the time. say, so, yeah, I got some pain con- coming da- coming down the leg. So the, the histrionic factor and, and secondary gain
0: issues and sometimes color that suffering mm. issue, but that's obviously very important because." There's literally a board's question. I will say that um, if you have someone that comes into clinic and their ODI is ninety, yeah. they're right, <laughs> right. They're they're not in your clinic with, if it's really ninety, right? Right, so.
1: exactly. Yeah. So so yeah, the, the 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 pain drawings where they've got lightning bolts in different colors yeah. and circles, arrows, and a paragraph in the back of each one explain. Yeah, you you, know, you, you, you have to separate that. But uh, I, for me, it's when the exam and the symptoms match the imaging. I feel, and if it, that makes me think that there's a high likelihood I can do some good. Without that, it's much more difficult for me to recommend surgery. I do the same thing just screening patients uh, for the office. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, look at, you look at the records, you look at the films, and it's like, and it shifts. You know, when I was younger, I was much more of the, of the, of the, of the, of the mindset, well, if I can help, maybe I should give it a try. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been bludgeoned into the realization that unless I'm really sure I'm going to do well, I'm probably not going to do well.
2: You don't think it's the right of a patient who, let's say, has a, has a 44% chance of relief, meaningful relief. that And that's a low number, right? Because most people say the threshold for an ethical surgeon is around 70, 75 at least minimum, right? Um, because we know that cancer doctors and cancer surgeons and uh, cardiologists, they have a very low tolerance for intervening if they think they might be able to help, right?
1: Yeah, but they don't do what we do. You know, we, we you know, it's, it's funny, I had this exact... And I'm not advocating I, no, this, no, I'm just I, asking you the question. I had like. this exact conversation. I, I, I practiced in Wisconsin, we're next to Minnesota, and there was a group called Twin Cities Spine, and there mm-hmm. was a surgeon there who was doing a lot of big fusions for relatively minor findings on MRI mm-hmm. scans. And we were at a just a regional meeting together, and, you know, nice guy, really nice guy. And I, I They usually I, are. Yeah, and I, I, <laughs> I, I, I asked him, I, 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 said, I said, you know, how do you think... He's. He, he, how do you justify doing this? He's, he's like, he's like, look, I get about a third of these patients better.
2: <laughs> no, no. And he, he said that?
1: Yes. And he was absolutely sincere and wow. saying, see, I, I can get a third of these patients better. Wow. That's a miracle. That's and, you know, and, right?
0: That's his win-loss matrix. Uh, yes, and so, so right. he,
1: he, he was, right. in his mind, the hero for saving these uh. otherwise miserable people. There's a lot of reason for misery. They don't always appear on an MRI scan. They're not always things we can fix. And so I I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned over time is that I can't fix stuff I can't see easily. Hmm. Um, If 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 it's not, if I don't know that I want to make it better, I'm very reticent to offer you surgery. You know, and that's, I've gotten pickier and pickier and pickier, you know, over the years. I've also gotten busier and busier and busier. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, you know. uh, so it's uh it's it's part of it is is growing up part of it is being in the same place for a long time you sort of get referral patterns and, and, and such and people know that that i'm not the, the referral doctor knows that i'm not going to offer someone surgery and this is a pretty good that they're going to get better you know so i get a lot of second opinions from cities to the south and 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 east of us mm-hmm. you know you know you know hey uh, they told me i they told they told me if i if i you know Sneeze, I was going to become paralyzed and I need a C2 to T2 fusion, you know, and you're looking at this going like, you know, I'm not sure exactly what they were looking at, but you're not going to die by sneezing, you know, uh, uh, type thing. So we, we spent a lot, and, you know, and, you know, now that people can get their MRI scan reports, everyone's, everyone thinks they're dying. You know, you read, you read your MRI scan report, and it sounds like you're, you're just, you know, ready to be brought out back and shot. So we spent a lot of time talking people off the ceiling. You know, well, I, I, I,
2: JP will let me, I, I have a very short rant. I've developed lately, <laughs> and I, I am getting older. But I, I, I will tell you, for me, the pillar is the severity, even though it's the squirreliest. And my patients, I don't think, have a lot of secondary gain, but, um, you know, that drives me the most, right? So, You're you, compassionate. You want
1: to help. You know? Right. They're you want to, and, and, and that's why you went into this, right? So
2: if the pathology is bad, but they're not suffering much, I usually will not do anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but, but this is the rant that I want to go on a little bit, and I know that this is going to piss off some listeners out there. But <laughs> lately... I've gotten this thing where, you know, has anybody asked, ever asked you this question in clinic? Would you do this if it's your mother?
1: Sure. They ask me that all the time. Every
2: time, that, right? right? And my, what's your answer?
1: Depends upon the level of my certainty that I can make him better. If I, if I'm <laughs> you damn, say that to them. If, if I'm damn sure that I can make him better, yes, I'd recommend okay, it. Okay.
2: You know what I say to them? I say the same thing every time. I say, first of all, you don't know if I like my mother. Okay. <laughs> but have, have you ever heard of in the history of man, a doctor turning on going, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. My mom, might do something very good. What I'm offering you is something <laughs> that I would do to someone I don't care about. And then it took me a little further. It's like, what would I do if it was me? Uh-huh. And I started to say this. Well, you shouldn't ask that question. You should ask what I should do if it were me in the shoes, right? And then it occurred to me, and this is not to indict posterior cervical. I'm just mm-hmm. going to throw it out there. First laminoplasty ever done in Western Hemisphere was done at University of Miami because mm-hmm. it was taught by the Japanese in the early 70s to Barth Green and Frank Aismond. But I don't know, and maybe you could tell me if I'm wrong, I don't know of a single surgeon, certainly not an operating surgeon, who's had a posterior cervical anything other than a foraminotomy, who still operates. In other mm-hmm. words, a laminoplasty, laminectomy, laminectomy fusion of more than like one level. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a single one. Uh, I'm sure I'm wrong, I'm sure there are some, but then I hear people get up on stage and talk about how amazing a laminoplasty or a laminectomy or a laminectomy fusion or whatever it is they're offering is. But they know full well, I think, in their own heart that if they had that procedure themselves, they would probably retire. Not anterior, right? Anterior is different. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to do posterior surgery. That's not the point of this. Mm -hmm. The point of this is if you're going to do that surgery, maybe you should tell the patient, well, this might be the end of your career Mm. after I do this procedure, right? But nobody says that. Or I shouldn't say that. Few people say that.
1: Well, you shouldn't do those procedures unless it's going to be the end of their career if you don't do the procedure. Right. Mm. That's exact. That's right. Mm. But that's not how the conversation usually goes in clinic, right? It's, I, I, I agree. Um, it's a lot easier when you've got some gray hair and you're as old as your patients. Yeah. Um, to have these conversations. They'll, they'll say, what would you do? And I say, well, listen, I'm in a different situation. I've got five kids and divorce. I'm working till I'm dead. I'm not having <laughs> surgery. <laughs> You know, you know, you know, you know or, or, you know, I'm a surgeon. I'm very comfortable with, with, with this, these procedures. I have just had surgery yeah. on my shoulder. I've had surgery elsewhere. You know, I'm right. very comfortable with the idea. And I have no problem with it. So I'd probably go ahead and do it, you know, depending upon what what, right. what, what the operation is, you know. But um, the um, I, I, I think you are absolutely right. But you also have to remember that people are in different places. Um, yeah. You know, and, and you, you, again, part of the wisdom is knowing where they're coming from and trying to make a recommendation based upon... Where they are,
2: yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not indicting any one procedure. By the way, I'm just saying as a general. No, rule I agree. Thumb. I agree. Yeah. My,
1: my the, the posterior cerebral fusion patients are miserable for a while, and then they're different. They, S- yes, they, a percentage they, of they, them they, are they, horrible. They, they for are. A long they, time. They, they are different after yeah. that operation. But I don't do it unless they're they really need the operation. Yeah, you know, and and because I could say, look, we can not do this operation, and there's a seventy percent chance you're going to be way worse in three to seven years from now right you know uh you know these these are the they're, they're all myelopathic they all they and they're all you know you know have had i don't do it i don't do it for subtle um stuff right i, I might do an acdf for someone with subtle myelopathy type thing right that's not to say this i don't i don't find that to be a disabling procedure but i do agree with you the posterior cervicals laminoplasty or lamina confusion are are both tough to get through
2: i mean my my other example that is the front backs everybody's getting front back front back front back Mm. and i and i know why it's being done and i'm not saying it shouldn't be done i'm just saying would you let somebody do that to you i guess is the question and you know
1: maybe you would maybe you wouldn't right you know I, i Agree, I think the front backs are, are overdone. I also think C2 to T2s are, are, yeah. are, are, are when overdone. you get
2: down to T2, the scapula is detached, it's a different thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: so, so, but I mean, I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, this was phenomenal. I these are always so much better face to face, truly, and uh, having the whole crew and just look how far afield we got starting to talk about SI fusion. Uh, that is the beauty of having uh, someone so concerned, conscientious, and really just thoughtful about what you've been doing for your whole career, both in the clinic, in the OR, and with the guidelines and recommendations. So, Dr. Restig, thank you so much for coming back on the show, this was phenomenal. My pleasure. disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.